Well, the conflict in Israel and Gaza is far from simple, and many people are searching the internet with their questions. Here with me to help answer some of them, the most trending questions, at least, that people are asking online search engines is our Middle East analyst, Sebastian Asher. Sebastian, welcome to you. Thanks very much for being with us, um, for your expertise. <clears throat> Before we go to those questions, yes. let's get some analysis on where we're at in this situation. We've been talking a lot about the Rafa crossing, if you can explain uh, what that is, why it's so important, and if it is likely that Israel will allow people out. Yeah, I'm, I mean, to a degree, we're in a sort of holding pattern here. I mean, the big story, of course, is when and if Israel will launch its offensive from the north. Down in the south at the Rafah crossing, which is the, one of the two crossings, there's one obviously into Israel, this one is into Egypt, is where the anticipation is at the moment. And this morning we had reports that there was going to be a temporary truce to allow a very, we're talking very small number of Palestinian Americans across um, into Egypt. So as you were saying in your introduction there, there are several thousand people so at the Rafah crossing waiting to go. but. The temporary truce has not been agreed. We've actually had a statement from uh, the Israeli Prime Minister's office saying that there is no ceasefire. And when we talk about ceasefire, we're only talking about this most limited truce in terms of down there. There's been no ceasefire, no sign of a ceasefire up in the north of Gaza, where the Israeli bombardment has continued. Hamas has still continued to fire some rockets into Israel. So the, 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 the war between Israel and Hamas hasn't really changed in any of its dimensions over the past two or three days. The efforts are, of course, growing to try and open up Rafa crossing, the hope being that once it's open, obviously the first aid can come in, the first people can come out, and once that has happened, it's a major first step towards allowing more people out, allowing the, 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 the hundreds of thousands of Gazans who come down from the north of Gaza, where Israel is expected to uh, have its offensive after Israel warned them that they must go. Obviously, they're in very difficult circumstances down in the south. Still, the blockade, which has been tightened by Israel, is, is in place. There's been a tiny easing of it, but food shortages, water shortages, electricity, etc. Where do they stay? All the shelters essentially are taken up, people staying in relatives' homes. So it's, 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 it's a very combustible situation down there. Egypt, uh, which controls the Rafah crossing, does not want a huge influx of Palestinians. One, for its own security. Two, it doesn't want to be seen doing what would be seen in the Arab world, the Muslim world, as Israel's bidding. The fear, the concern amongst many Arabs is that once the Palestinians have left, they may never go back, and Egypt does not want to facilitate that. Okay, so let's talk about um, the situation to in the northern Israel mm. and, and its border with Lebanon, mm. and this group Hezbollah, who have been firing rockets into northern Israel, mm. killed two people in the past day or so, mm. two Israelis. Just explain who Hezbollah are, the influence they have, the, the control that they have in Lebanon and what they want to achieve. Well, I understand that Lebanon at the moment isn't governed by anybody. There's a caretaker government, there's no president. Now, part of the reason is the division between certain political elements and Hezbollah. Hezbollah, there's no doubt is the most powerful political and military force in Lebanon. It's more powerful than the Lebanese army. Um, it led a successful, in Hezbollah terms, bid for many years to drive Israel out of a buffer zone that it established in the south of Lebanon. Israel finally withdrew in 2000, and Hezbollah saw that as a huge success for themselves, and they essentially presented themselves as the only force in the Arab world that actually had won at least one victory against Israel. Six years later, 
there was um, a, 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 a problem between Israel and, and, uh, and Lebanon, which led Israel to invade Lebanon. It essentially pulverized the south of Lebanon, which is pretty much under the control of Hezbollah. And Hezbollah at that time was in dodgy territory, really, in Lebanon, because many people blamed Hezbollah for calling that devastation on Lebanon by Israel, by its actions. So Hezbollah tries to have this balance between its role as what it sees as a key resistance against Israel, but also within Lebanon of not pushing so hard against Israel that it upsets the whole status quo in Lebanon, such as it is. Um, and for example, I mean, unlike Hamas, which is an Islamist organization, obviously, and wants the Islamist ideology to be imposed wherever it rules, Hezbollah has never said that in Lebanon. That, and it's never 100% wanted to be politically in control of Lebanon. They're, 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 they, uh, they have ministries. They have huge clout about who's elected president, who's elected prime minister. But they don't want to 100% carry the can for Lebanon. So it's, it, it's a very, very difficult situation, a precarious balance for Lebanon, for, for, for Hezbollah within Lebanon and its relations outside. And of course, the other side of Hezbollah is that it's backed and essentially the creation to a large extent of Iran. So when people worry, when the Americans worry, Anthony Blinken at the moment has just arrived back in Israel. He was doing shuttle diplomacy around the Arab world. Key issue he's trying to lock down is that there's no further spillover in this war. Obviously, everybody looks north to Hezbollah. Hezbollah won't take serious action beyond what it's done so far without the say-so of Iran. Iran has been rhetorically suggesting that all bets could be off if things go really bad in Gaza, but at the moment it's tethered Hezbollah's power. And Israel has made it clear it does not want a war with Hezbollah. And we've seen the US moving um, airplane carriers, big yes. warships into Which is the essentially region. a warning to other outside players who might want to get involved, less about Hamas and the battle in Gaza, but essentially a message to Iran, really, that do not cross this line. We will take it very, very seriously. A few moments ago, you were talking about Egypt, about the Rafa crossing, yeah. about what Israel, what Egypt wants or, or doesn't want. People are also asking, um, is it safe to travel to Egypt at the moment? I think you could say it's safe to travel to Egypt. I mean, none of the Arab states around uh, um, Gaza and Israel are likely to get actively involved in a war. Lebanon may be drawn into it by Hezbollah, as, as, as we've just been saying. But Egypt has had the longest peace treaty back to 1978 with Israel. Uh, it has, in conjunction with Israel, it has very much controlled the borders around uh, Gaza and with Hamas. It's tried to play a mediating role. It's tried to bring the two factions, the two main Palestinian factions, Hamas and Fatah in the occupied West Bank, together at various points. It's continued with that mission. It will and has been involved in mediation now to try to get a ceasefire, to try to get talks going of some kind. But at this stage, I think that's really too early to bear any fruit. You will have, as you'll see across the Arab world and across the Muslim world, major protests in support of the Palestinians to some extent, in support of Hamas. So if you were going to Cairo, if you were going to some areas where those protests are going to be very large, then you know people traveling would need to be careful of that. There'd be security reasons to, to, to have concern of that. But in terms of 
Egypt directly being involved in a war with Israel over this, that isn't going to happen. And what about Jordan? People are asking, is it safe to travel to Jordan? Just explain Jordan, another neighbouring country to Israel, previously enemies, but we've seen the uh, Jordanian king also involved in trying to negotiate it's some a, kind of... It's a very similar story. I mean, both, <clears throat> both Egypt and Jordan. I mean, Jordan signed a peace deal in 1994 with uh, um, Israel having participated in at least two wars against Israel, 1967 and the Yom Kippur War. But its role is in some ways more complicated than Egypt in that Egypt returned the Sinai, what had the Sinai returned to it from, from, from Israel. It doesn't have a large proportion of Palestinians there either as refugees or anything else. Jordan essentially it's very difficult to, to gauge exactly the numbers, but it still has a huge Palestinian refugee population and it has a large Palestinian population beyond it who sort of identifies Palestinians as much as Jordanians. So it's a real tinderbox there, which um, King Abdullah, his father King Hussein, have struggled, you know, throughout their reigns to control because anywhere, I mean, if, if you look outside uh, the Palestinian territories, the place where there's the strongest pro-Palestinian feeling and the strongest numbers of people is in Jordan. So King Abdullah is playing again the same role that his father did and as, as is happening with Egypt, a mediation role because of its relationship with Israel, because of the stakes being so high for Jordan and it's always been seen in the West as a very West friendly country and it depends hugely on Western financial support in order to survive. So again it will play as this story continues an important mediation role, but it would also be trying very hard to keep a lid on protests within its own country, not just Palestine, but also Islamist. It, it has a very, very strong um, Islamist uh, force there uh, politically, and that has seen big protests in the past. It's seen violence. That could break out as this continues. If the Gaza offensive goes, um, goes ahead uh, 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 and there are many, many more casualties amongst Palestinians than we've seen so far, then the pressure inside Jordan from the people, just as we'll see around the Arab world, will grow more and more intense. Obviously, we've talked a lot about Hamas, who they are over the past week. Israel is at war with Hamas. They have vowed to crush them, yes. to, to wipe them out. It was Hamas that launched this murderous attack on Israel in which 1,400 Israelis and other foreign nationals were killed just over a week ago. They've taken 199 people hostage. Explain a little bit more about the Hamas leadership, because we've heard over the past few days Israel said they have killed the leader of Hamas in Gaza. Um, but there is a differentiation between the Hamas militant wing, the Hamas political wing. Let's talk about, there, first of all, about the, the military wing and who they want to destroy. Yes. I mean, they haven't killed the actual leader of, of, of Hamas in Gaza. They've killed some senior uh, uh, members who they say were directly involved in the uh, assault uh, on Israel. So you have, a, you, you have a leadership outside, a political leadership in exile, essentially. Um, Ismail uh, Haniyeh is, is, uh, is the leader. He moves between uh, Qatar and several other countries. Qatar, though, is his real host country. And they have shown more readiness, as you'd expect, from a political leadership to have negotiation, have talks to some degree, to move a little bit away from the founding charge of Hamas, which says that it is uh, uh, working towards the total destruction of Israel. It's blown hot and cold, but there have been times when that leadership has essentially said that it would settle 
If the 1967 borders were returned to and the occupied Palestinian territories were given to the Palestinians as a formal state, that they would accept a truce, perhaps a hundred-year truce. Now, that kind of conversation has died away over the past few years, just as the peace process has been stalled. So you have that element, which is, you know, as in any organisation like this, there are different layers, different strata within it. And then you have in Gaza, essentially, a military leadership which is much, much more hardcore. You have Mohammed Deith is the leader there. Yahya Sinwar is the political leader in Gaza, the administrative leader. And these are people who have shown no sign of any quarter with Israel and still believe that a military solution is the only way to go. They still believe that they can, as, as they obviously tried to do uh, in this assault, to cause so much pain, so much hurt to Israel, that Israel will either bow and leave, and that's so great as hope, or will be pressured into, compromise is probably not the right word, but in giving the Palestinians more than I think anybody else is expecting, the, 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 the Hamas political leadership, the Fatah leadership, etc. They will, at the moment, feel that they've made their point. I mean, as you say, Israel has vowed the total obliteration of Hamas, but they at the moment are definitely in the lead. They are in the, are in the ascendant. They have the upper hand as far as Hamas is concerned. Um, they will be, you know, giving a sense that what they've done has changed the status quo that's existed all these years. Nothing else has done that through their actions. Now, they will claim this is what they tried to say, but they haven't killed any civilians. They essentially believe that anyone in Israel is a settler and is therefore guilty. That's their way of looking at it. Again, the Hamas leadership itself, political leadership, doesn't talk in such black and white terms. So we are talking about very different um, um, layers within Hamas, which are definitely not at odds with, um, at the moment, but we, we could see, as this progresses, more, more of a division. And at the end of this process at the end of the war. I think the Hamas political leadership, mm. just as the political leadership in the occupied West Bank, will try to reassert themselves in terms of looking towards the future and looking back to a two-state solution. Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organisation yes. in the UK, in the US, the EU also, so many countries around the world. When we talk about the militant wing and the uh, political side of it, is that one and the same thing? Well, I mean, in the UK, Originally, the, 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 the armed wing was prescribed as terrorist, and then two years ago, Hamas itself, as an organisation as a whole, was prescribed as terrorist. I think at the moment, and certainly in the US estimation, it doesn't make any distinction. But if there are going to be negotiations, if there are going to be talks, Hamas, to some degree, will have to be involved, because the Hamas political leadership is unlikely to be destroyed unless Israel is going to go on a mission, we don't know this yet, but to kill Ismail Haniyeh, to kill the people who, 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 who could speak for Hamas outside of the Gaza Strip. So it is a difficult position to be in to some degree because there's no doubt that as far as Palestinians are concerned right now, they see Hamas as the only viable leadership in the occupied territories. As far as Fatah is concerned, as far as President Abbas is, is concerned, they're not seen as having any real say, even in the occupied West Bank. We're seeing there new groups, new armed groups have been emerging in the past year and a half as Israel has gone in on military raids, you know, almost daily there have been clashes. 
um, in response to, you know, a whole wave of killings inside Israel by um, Palestinian gunmen. We've seen these new groups arise, and they and Hamas are the ones at the moment who will be calling the shots. We've heard from President Abbas, he was speaking just, just yesterday, saying that Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinian people. He will hold to that, but at the moment that voice is drowned out. Okay, let's talk about the Palestinian people. The Palestinian people live in Gaza and the West Bank. And people are asking, is Palestine a country? Was Palestine ever a country? It's not formally a country at the moment. There are some countries around the world who recognise it as a state, but it's not been formally recognised by the UN. It has a non-member observer status at the UN. It's had since 2012. Uh, we talk about President Abbas, so, I mean, that gives a sense of a head of a state. But it's still very much in embryo. And the whole issue of a peace process was to, was to set up a viable Palestinian state. That doesn't exist. The difficulty over that was the Palestinians never believed that what they were being offered was anything close to what they'd lost. So at the times when it looked close that some accord might be made back in the early 2000s, back in uh, the late 1990s, the Palestinians in the end rejected uh, what they were offered because they believed that it just didn't, didn't come near to the boundaries of what they believed they should be given. It wasn't that the Fatah and the, uh, uh, and the PLO rejected the idea of a two-state solution, it wasn't that they rejected the idea that Israel should exist, but they weren't satisfied with what, uh, with what they were being offered. Palestine as a state, I mean, it, uh, as an entity in the Middle East, it's existed for a very, very long time, but it's existed under a whole series of empires, under the Roman Empire, under the Ottoman Empire from the 16th century until the First World War. Then it was a mandate under uh, Britain up until 1947 when Britain withdrew. And then, of course, there was the League of Nations decision to divide what was Palestine into Israel and into uh, an Arab state. Israel declared independence, and then there was a war with Arab states trying to take over the whole area. They lost. So there hasn't been a Palestine as a country in modern times, but as a name, absolutely. And so the Palestinian people 100% believe that they have every right to self-identify as Palestinians. And why do Jewish people claim it as their homeland? Well, that is based partly on ancient history, on the Bible, uh, that that was their homeland going back, you know, to, to, the, to the days of King David, etc. Um, it had different states as, uh, 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 that, that existed over various times within the framework of the Bible. But in modern history, there hasn't been an Israeli state. What we're seeing is there was a rise of Zionism in the 19th century. It was a movement in Europe, which essentially was uh, pushing for a safe homeland for, for, for the Jewish people. And Israel, as being their original ancestral homeland, was where they decided to go. So the settlements began from then and built and built and built. So more and more Jewish people obviously were going during the next 60, 70 years, even before the creation of Israel. So, I mean, you have a slightly separate way of looking at it. You have many of the settlers believe in the biblical sense of Israel, that all of it belongs to them. 
that everyone else is an intruder, that the Palestinians came after them, that they are the true indigenous population. Then you have many people who came from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, who came after the Holocaust, who see it maybe in a slightly more pragmatic way. They see it as their safe home that was created for them. Yes, it has the ancestral side to it, but they're not as committed to the idea that Judea, Samaria, the places in the West Bank, where the settlers are, has to be part of their homeland. What they're more interested in is having an Israeli state, and therefore they're willing to accept a Palestinian state side by side if they can be assured of their own security with that. So there is that division, I think, between uh, Israelis, settlers, and also Jewish people, the diaspora. So we have another question, which is, why are Israel and Gaza at war? Would you describe Israel being at war with Gaza or being at war with Hamas? It's being described as at war with Hamas. That's how Israel describes it. That's how we're describing it, essentially, because, I mean, I mean Hamas controls Gaza, no doubt about that. There was an election, but it goes way back to 2006, but they won. They then seized the whole of Gaza by force from Fatah. They forced them out in 2007. So there hasn't really been any way of gauging how much the people of Gaza want Hamas to be in control. So Israel certainly doesn't want to look as if they are waging war on the Palestinians of Gaza. They want to confine it to Hamas. And that's why Israel is saying that they're doing everything they can to try <coughs> and protect Palestinians by telling them to leave so they can then have a clear run at Hamas. For Palestinians, they see it, and many people in uh, across the Arab and Muslim world and, and beyond, see it as almost uh, a niche distinction, that the bombs that are falling from Israel, the airstrikes that are happening, don't make a clear enough distinction between Hamas and between the people who live there. So they see it as a war on Gaza, as a war on the people of Gaza, as we've seen time and time again. They would say that this is a war on Gaza and a war on the Palestinians and a war on their desire for a state with their desire for dignity. Why Israel? Why is Israel imposing this blockade, water, food, medical supplies? We've just had a, a update on the Reuters news agency concerning the resumption that Israel said was going to happen of water in southern Gaza. Uh, the Hamas interior ministry have said that that has not happened. Um, it said that residents are drinking unhealthy water, posing a serious health crisis, threatening the lives of the citizens. And of course, many people can't get hold of any water at the moment. But why is Israel imposing this blockade <coughs> on, on all of the people, the two million people of Gaza? Well, this has been a blockade to a degree that's been on Gaza <coughs> since, since 2007. And Egypt as well has imposed a sort of blockade by controlling the, <coughs> the entry and exit from uh, the uh, Rafah crossing. And that's essentially a blockade on Hamas. Hamas, which Israel see, sees as its biggest enemy, that Egypt also sees as a kind of enemy within the Palestinians. So what we saw when Israel responded to the Hamas assault was they tightened it. They then called it a total siege. And several ministers said that we are going to stop food, we're going to stop water, we're going to stop electricity. And the thinking behind that, one imagines, is to put maximum pressure on the people of Gaza on the pal um, to... to, to try and disengage them to some extent from Hamas to show these are the consequences of what Hamas has done. You are suffering them. They've done something without necessarily your say-so. They haven't gone and, and, and asked you if you want this, but they've done it in your name. So I think from the Israeli perspective, if they feel that if they put maximum pressure, then perhaps they can complete 
their task, which they've set out to be to eradicate Hamas as quickly as possible. From an international perspective, from an aid perspective, we've heard day in, day out from UN aid agencies, the other agencies, that this is just insupportable, that in already very, very difficult conditions inside Gaza have been made totally unlivable, that people will soon perhaps die uh, because of having to drink dirty water, disease, all of these issues. And how can you get a large proportion of people to move from the north of Gaza, the hundreds of thousands who've moved, to a place where there isn't much else provided there either? How can that continue? And if this is going to be a war which could go on for months, then quite apart from what will happen with the Israeli offensive, the ground offensive, the likely loss of civilian lives, what about the people who are actually, to some extent, to some extent, sheltered from that main offensive? How are they going to be uh, uh, looked after? And if a Rafa crossing is not open fully to allow aid, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of lorries and trucks, containers waiting to move in with aid, but they can't, they can't go in at the moment. So, as I say, from Israeli perspective, it's maximum pressure. We are, I mean, they're saying this is a war like no other that we thought with Hamas. This is a war essentially of extinction, of obliteration. Sebastian. The Palestinians are the ones who are going to suffer. Thank you very much for taking us through all that in such great detail.